what happens with cortisol, and this is a super common problem with guys that come in with poor sleep. What's the big result of that is high cortisol. Now, what happens with high cortisol? Well, it crushes DHEA, as you mentioned. It also crushes testosterone. It causes insulin resistance. And what that does is it creates a cascade of events to where now you're having trouble with energy, you're having trouble burning fat, you have trouble building muscle, and you have low energy, and it creates this vicious, ugly cycle. And a lot of it can be traced back to elevated cortisol. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, we are flipping the conversation on its head, and we are talking all about male optimization, what it means to be male 2.0. And I brought in my friend and colleague, Dr. Tracy Gappin. He is a board-certified urologist, world-renowned men's health and performance expert, and he is a best-selling author, professional speaker. He has over 20 years of clinical experience focusing on providing you know, Fortune 500 executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, all with a personalized path to health and performance. And I wanted to talk about male optimization on what is very largely a female optimization podcast, because in my opinion, if you are a Betty, you're someone who is devoted to becoming better, not perfect, but better every day. You're intelligent, you're savvy. Chances are that you have taken some of the content that we've produced here on Better and integrated it in some way into your own life. And my dream for you, my wish for you is that you get so much good information that your cuppeth runneth over, right? That you are so filled up with empowered information to make better decisions for yourself so that you can heal. But as that's happening, you are also able to gift that forward to other people in your life. So whether you share this podcast with other women and you say, hey, you need to check this out. Or if you have a man in your life, a male, whether that's your son or your uncle or your father or your partner, um, that you want to help because you love them and you honor them, this conversation is going to be really important. And as the Betty army grows, as I amalgamate my Bettys all around the world with information so that they can make informed consent, like, you know, informed decisions around their health, we so can extend that to our beautiful men who, in my opinion, 
are suffering. It's often the case that I would notice in clinical practice that you know, I, you know, male patients, especially if I, you know, if I had a female under care, she would drag her husband in often kicking and screaming like, Oh, you know, back pain. I just get a, okay, fine. Sometimes I can't walk, but who cares? Right. It's, it's, it's often, you know, men who have a harder time being vulnerable and asking for help. So I wanted to present this conversation with you to you in the hopes that you can take in the information, maybe look at some of the men in your life that you love, honor, and cherish, and you can move towards helping them move the needle in their lives. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tracy Gappin. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water, and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, Dr. Tracy Gappin, I am very excited to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And this is going to be a bit of a different conversation than my fans and my podcast listeners are used to, because this is a show where we talk a lot about female physiology. We talk about menopause, perimenopause. We talk about ladies' hormones. We talk about lady bits. We talk about sex, all the stuff. But today we are going to flip the script and we're going to talk about male optimization and maybe a little bit of andropause and some of the things that we can do to be helping our the men in our life that we love optimize our health. So I'm really, really excited to have you on here. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. And, and you know, I'm actually glad I'm here with you today because what I have found is typically it's the women who get men to finally pay attention and step forward and start to take charge and take control and become empowered to do something about their health. And so I'm really excited to get to talk to your female audience today. Good. And I think that this is going to be such a great conversation because I, as much as I think it's important for women to be doing the self-care and taking care of themselves, we just naturally are caregivers for the people in our lives. So whether we have sons or husbands or just men in our lives that we love, this is going to be really useful. And before we get into all that juicy goodness, as I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I think that your story is really interesting in that, you know, you are a classically trained urologist in, you know, what might be classified as a traditional allopathic disease-driven model of sick care. And you've really moved in your practice from that more sick care model to a functional medicine or, you know, what 
some might call healthcare, you know, the promotion of health. So I would love to know a little bit about your backstory, how that transition came to be. Was there a personal story that, you know, your own personal transformation, someone in your life that was really important? Like, how did you come to the realization that your traditional training was not the fully encompassing uh, thing that you had wanted to, that you were hoping for? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for that. That's a great question. Great lead in. So it, this actually starts as a lot of uh, physicians uh, share stories about themselves with my own health, my own personal health. Uh, about five years ago or so, my wife, there, there is the wife pushing the man to do something about their health. Uh, my wife urged me to uh, go get my first physical ever. I was uh, in, in, in a state where something was not quite right. I was uh, stressed out. I uh, knew something was wrong. I wasn't sleeping very well. I was uh, you know, I'm a, as a busy urologist, uh, running to the hospital on call and um, really running myself ragged, wasn't taking care of myself. And um, I had become uh, overweight on the borderline of obesity without even realizing it because I was so focused on my practice and my patients. And so I went for my first physical ever and it was eye opening and it was uh, humbling and embarrassing, but it was a little scary as well because when I went to um, have this exam, my, um, my labs were off. My cholesterol was very high. My creatinine, my kidney function labs were off. Um, I was markedly overweight and, um, it was clear that I need to make a change. What was scary, however, and what was a really pivotal moment for me in my career and my life was that this primary care doctor, he was a concierge doc actually at the time tells me, well, you just need to exercise more, eat more vegetables, and maybe you should be on a statin. And that was it. Like, and I talk about this in my book. That was all I got. And, and I walked away from that, that moment, terrified from my own mortality, but also realizing, well, that's kind of crappy. That's all he gave me was that. And, and he's a, a concierge doc who I would think would have the answers. And then I very quickly realized, well, damn, I'm a, I'm a men's health expert. I'm a urologist, men's health expert, you know, board certified, been doing this for 20 years. And I, I don't really know the answer either. I don't even know what to tell myself either other than what he told me. And it, it was really eye-opening for me going through that personal experience to realize that we, we're great at disease care. You know, we, we're, we're good at crisis. We're good at stamping out disease, treating your symptoms. And it's not true health care, as you just mentioned. It's um, Western medicine, you know, traditional allopathic care is disease model crisis care. And so that got Which they're me great at, they're great at that. Like they they're do really, really, oh, yeah. they really, really do Absolutely. good with crisis. Yeah. You have a kidney stone, you have prostate cancer. I got you covered. You can't urinate. I got you covered. Okay. Crisis situation. We're there, but when it comes to actually promoting health and wellness and optimization is what I call it. And uh, promoting longevity, we fail horribly. And so that got me on, on a journey, on a quest to really understand uh, proactive medicine better. You know, P4 medicine is, is, is personalized, is participatory, is proactive, is preventive. And it got me into the, the area of epigenetics and the area of uh, hormone optimization. And I learned about how to incorporate peptide therapy and how to incorporate wearable tech and how to use genetics to personalize what I'm doing and how do I apply that to my patients. And it carried over into how I treated the men in my practice. And, you know, I, you know, personal aside, um, I had a fairly rough childhood. My parents divorced when I was very young 
And I never really had a father figure. And I realized at this pivotal moment in my life a few years ago when I had this health scare that I need to be there for my kids, for my wife, you know, for people who depend on me. And for me to be present and engaged, I need to do everything I can to take care of myself first. You know, you can think of when they're given the emergency instructions in the airplane, they talk about putting you on your life, uh, on your oxygen mask before you help those, you know, the little ones next to you. Well, if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not going to be around to be able to be the husband, father, and leader that I need to be. And so that's where Mail 2.0 came from. That's where the gap in code to men's health came from. Um, and um, it's my passion. And I have a newfound passion for not urology, but for optimizing men's health. I think that's so important. And I think that you know, in society, women are, there's almost a cult, you know, we talk about, I talk a lot about, you know, sexual dimorphisms and cultural biases that we have between men and women in our modern society. And one of the arguments that you can make very easily is that it's much more acceptable for a woman to express herself and say, this upsets me or to cry or to express any kind of emotional uh, duress, you know, or on the opposite side too, positive or negative, right? And I think that men sometimes get the short end of the stick here because we are, you know, you mentioned, and I, I bring this up because you mentioned, you know, not having a father figure. And I think that a lot of men, we teach them, you know, directly or indirectly to not feel their feelings, to like put their head down and punch things out. And I think that there's a lot of pressure, you know, to, you said something along the lines of, I want, I want it to be there for, as a husband and as a father to my children so that those, those mistakes were not, you know, you didn't have that intergenerational, like the same mistake propagating itself forward. And I think a lot of men feel that pressure, right. To be the financial provider in many cases, to be the, you know, the emotional guard for, or the, you know, the protector of the, of the family. And I think that that really plays into their health and some of their outcomes in their health as well. And I like, um, I like that you said that your wife was like, Hey, let's, let's, let's take you in for a, take you in for a, you know, get some, you know, work done. My question to you with all this lead up is why do you think it is, so hard for men to ask for help. Is it like a societal, is it more of a, a societal thing where we're con- like men are like strong, like bull, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to be mm-hmm. the, you know, be the stoic, non-emotional, um, both in terms of optimization and when there's a crisis, like why is it so hard for men, do you think to reach out and what can we do to help them? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. It is pervasive. You know, the, the, the lack of attention, lack of desire to seek help, um, I, I think a lot of it is the the perception of weakness. You know, when a guy goes to see a doctor, there's something wrong. It's weakness. Um, um, uh, you know, it, it's a a question of perhaps masculinity. It's a question of um, of strength. And I think that men need to take a very different approach. That's, you know, the concept behind male 2.0 is being proactive and taking charge and feeling empowered to do something about it now before symptoms and disease sets in um, because it's, it's so easy for guys to ignore it. And, you know, we're busy, you know, the, the, the guys I work with are typically highly successful. They're professionals, they're entrepreneurs, they're, they're C-suite guys who um, run a fast paced, busy, stressed life, and they don't have time to slow down and stop. And 
there's not a reason to go see a doctor. There's not a reason to focus on your health until there's suddenly a crisis situation. And, and that's what I see is, is that guys will often not come in until there's a problem. And typically that problem happens to be sex. You know, when they start having issues with sexual function, that's what finally gets their attention and gets them willing to make a change. And, and you know, sure, that is one symptom of a much bigger problem. I'm just trying to change the, the, the narrative, change the paradigm of when guys decide to take charge of their health and let it not be when it gets to that point. And that's, that's what I would like to redefine as the alpha male, right? Because we think of the alpha male as like this toxic masculine, like, no, I can't be hurt. But I think that the alpha male is someone who knows that they're strong, right? So if they have the data that we're going to talk about today, if they have the insights into their health, they know how to build on their strength so that they can be protectors, so that they can keep other people safe, so that they can, you know, do their, you know, their life's work in the world. And that's, you know, I have sons, right? I think about this all the time when, you know, I, I try to help my children understand their feelings and be in touch with them. And, you know, when they're upset, one of the things that I, it's my own little pet peeve with, with parenting, when I hear, you know, mothers and their sons are crying, it's like, stop crying. You know, boys don't cry. And it's like, yes, boys cry, you know, like they're kids. You know? So I, I love the, I love this idea of male 2.0 in that, you know, we can really redefine what it means to be a male. And if you have the data, like how much stronger are you? If you're a male who knows what his cholesterol numbers are, who knows, you know, their genetic blueprint or the epigenetic expression. And we're going to talk about all these testosterone numbers and all that. So, um, sure. I, so I, I just love that. Um, and how, and how would you define male 2.0? I know we touched on the word a little bit, but what is your definition of a 2.0 male? Yeah, sure. It's progressive. It's proactive. It's a man who is willing to step charge and uh, a step forward and take charge of his health. A man who um, understands that um, we're all uniquely different and there's no one size fits all approach. And that's where I'm sure we'll get into the topic of genetics and epigenetics. Um, A guy who understands that there's no simple, uh, easy fix. You know, a lot of guys are are looking for just a testosterone shot at the the quick stop around the corner to to fix it. And and a guy uh, who is male 2.0 understands that it takes a much more uh, comprehensive or a systems-based approach, as I call it, um, to optimizing their health, a man who is um, willing to um, put in the hard work, looking at the long-term play, the long-term approach to health, and that you know we're not we're not trying to fix things so you just so you can have sex tonight. It's not about that. It's about the long-term picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I see guys in my my practice who'll come in and 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 they're morbidly obese. They're 250, 300 pounds, and they just want Viagra. And my buddy, like the, you're, you're missing the forest for the trees, you know? So it's focusing on, on the bigger picture, focusing on what's important. It's proactive. It's taking charge. All right. So let's talk a little bit. We were talking about this in the pre-chat um, in terms of what I, what I see, and I'm sure you are seeing this uh, ad nauseum, which is what I would call the estrogenization of our beautiful men, you know, and one of the unfortunate trends that we're seeing is this idea that we are seeing progressive decline in the fertility mm-hmm. of our men, right? So our test, the testosterone levels are uh, decreasing and we were just having a little uh, go. And I said, I want to make sure that we talk about some of the changes in terms of what we define as normal T for men and how that's really changed. So can you speak to how, 
testosterone, our measurement of testosterone, our view on what normal T, how that's changed over the years. Absolutely. And, and cut me off when you like, cause I can go on this topic for like an hour right here. I've actually, I was on stage at A4M a couple of years ago talking about this topic. So yeah. um, I, I, I'm passionate about it. So please uh, don't let me go on. Um, so uh, testosterone levels have plummeted by about 1% a year over the last 50 years. Um, and, and that applies to not just testosterone levels themselves, but fertility numbers when we're looking at sperm function, sperm count as well. Um, similar studies in the U.S. as well as in Europe have shown the same thing, that, that numbers are plummeting. And I like to call it a testosterone pandemic. You know, everyone's talking about COVID pandemic, but this is a real crisis. And if we don't do something, I predict by the year 2040, the world's going to be impotent and infertile. Yep. You need uh, a and seed it, and a soil. You need both things. You absolutely. Need the seed and the yeah. soil. And, yeah. And, and unfortunately, no one's really focusing on this. And we can look at causes, uh, and when we identify what could possibly be at the root of all this, uh, it's endocrine disruptors. It's toxins, toxicants, chemicals in our environment that are crushing hormones. These chemicals are not just causing low testosterone, they're causing obesity, they're causing autoimmune disease, cancer, uh, infertility, uh, a lot of uh, psychological issues with depression and anxiety can all be traced back to the endocrine disruptors in our environment. Examples. Number one, atrazine. Atrazine is an herbicide that's sprayed on our crops. And uh, unfortunately, the U.S. is the only country where it's actually still legal, by the way. Um, but there are studies that look at uh, frogs who are exposed to very low levels of atrazine. And these frogs, these male frogs, turn female. They actually turn female and they reproduce. They lay eggs and they reproduce at oh, very my. small doses of atrazine and we have much higher exponentially higher doses of atrazine on our food and is our that a weed killer is, is that a weed killer no, exactly it's an it's exactly a weed killer that's sprayed on the crops typically in the midwest the corn and wheat crops specifically um and so there's a big reason why you know eating only organic and trying to do everything we can to to get rid of atrazine uh, it's the second most commonly used herbicide behind glyphosate we can look at things like bpa and phthalates um, BPA is, is used to make plastic water bottles. Uh, Thales is used to make any kind of plastic, like plastic food containers, uh, K cups, um, any kind of, um, personal care products like, um, shampoo and deodorant and colognes and, uh, soaps and laundry detergents are full of phthalates as well. These chemicals have been shown in numerous studies to crush hormone levels. And, you know, back to the BPA, on this planet, we go through a million water bottles a minute. Oh my God, a, I've never heard that A million a minute, and most of those are not recycled. And so that yeah. plastic is, is leaching into our water. Mm. We're drinking it. There are studies that have shown that we have as many as 20 different endocrine disruptors detectable in our urine at any one time. And so we know that these chemicals are crushing our hormones as well as causing numerous other problems. So the key is to really identify the culprits and do everything we can to minimize exposure. Uh, there are a couple of great apps out there by the environmental by the environmental working group that we can use to identify products in our um, um, everyday use that we can uh, avoid. Uh, Think Dirty is a great one, a uh, great app that you can use, um, and then uh, Living Healthy or Health Excuse me, Healthy Living um, by the environmental working group are, are two great apps that, that people can use. Um, and then you know, optimizing detox function is critical as well. Um, and that's where I get into genetics with the guys I work with on, on how can we improve our body's ability to fight off these toxins and chemicals. So it's a, it's a massive problem. And 
you know, I'll just point out that, that, that testosterone issues are not just about sex. They're not about sexual function, erections, libido. It's not about building muscle. It's about cardiovascular health. You know, we know that low testosterone is associated with a, a, a markedly increased risk of major adverse cardiac events. Low testosterone is associated with increased risk of prostate cancer, which is counterintuitive. Um, testosterone is vital for bone health. It's vital for normal metabolism, to build muscle, to burn fat, to have normal cognitive function, focus, concentration. Um, it's important for healthy mood. And so this is not just about sex. It's about a man's life. Yeah. And it's an anabolic hormone, right? So all the things that you talked about are going to promote growth, like growth in the brain. Like there's, you know, I often joke, you know, if there's one organ you want big and thick over the course of your life, it's going to be your brain. And so of course, testosterone uh, vis-a-vis BDNF and some other uh, growth factors are really going to help promote that as well. So you've talked about what testosterone does, you know, for the male brain, for the body. What are some of the, if, you know, what are some some of the signs and symptoms that someone uh, might have around having low T. And and I know that there's, you know, there's a big range in terms of like what is considered low T. And this is why I really like your approach in terms of you really need to know what your levels are now. Like one of the things I always tell men is like, even if you're feeling amazing right now, get your testosterone levels tested because then you have at least some kind of baseline for you to be able to refer back to in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years. So let's talk a little bit about, um, let's talk about optimal levels of T and then what are some signs and symptoms of low testosterone? And we can get into some of the epigenetics around and then we can move into some epigenetic uh, conversation as well. So it's interesting that men will come see me because they're having symptoms of low testosterone, which can include brain fog, low energy, difficulty focusing, difficulty concentrating, uh, difficulty losing weight is a common symptom where guys will say they have, you know, the, the, the beer belly, the, 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 the tire around their waist that they can't get rid of. They're exercising every day and they cannot seem to shake the weight off. Um, they're having issues with fatigue where late in the day, they can't keep their eyes open. They're having to take a nap issues with libido where maybe, um, in years past they were chasing their wife around. Now their wife is chasing them around or I think, you know, <laughs> role reversal, so to speak, yeah. um, issues with sexual function, um, as well. So those are the common complaints, you know, energy and focus, weight loss and sexual issues are definitely the three kind of buckets of symptoms that guys will typically present with, with low testosterone. Um, uh, what's frustrating is I'll have men come see me and they'll have a, a testosterone level checked by their primary care doctor and they'll say, yeah, yeah, it was normal. It was normal. Well, like, well, well what was it? It's like, no, it was normal. No, what was it? And they'll tell me their total testosterone was, let's say 500. Okay. And they'll say it was quote normal. And I, I gotta say, I hate the word normal here because there is no quote normal. There's optimal and not. And so to understand this a little better, when, when, when you look at a lab slip, and it gives you the testosterone numbers. There's a reference range to the right over there. I want to emphasize here, unemphatically, that is not a normal range. That's a reference range. It's not a normal range. So what is a reference range? A reference range is simply the population. And you look at the median and you take two standard deviations on either side of that median. And that's your quote reference range. That's really critically important to realize. That's not a normal range. So going back to what I mentioned earlier, 
the fact that testosterone levels are plummeting every year. They're dropping by about 1%. Again, we've had about a 30% decline in testosterone over the last 30 years. That reference range, how has it changed in the last 30 years? That reference range has gotten lower and lower and lower and lower. That does not mean that normal testosterone levels have declined. Normal is not normal. Optimal is what you want. And so the key here is a number like a total testosterone, like 500, that's not optimal. Okay. That's in the middle of the reference range. That's not optimal. Typically optimal ranges are much higher than that. What's the specific number? Well, now we get into free testosterone. And what I care way more than what I care about way more than total testosterone is the free testosterone. So the free testosterone is the testosterone that is in the bloodstream that is not bound to proteins that is bioavailable, active, available for use. Most testosterone that's floating around the bloodstream, over 90% of it, is actually bound to proteins like SHBG, albumin, other proteins, and that makes it worthless. So for my listener, SHBG is sex hormone binding globulin. If testosterone is bound to sex hormone binding globulin or albumin or other proteins, it cannot get into the cell and therefore it cannot have any clinical effect. And so we care about the free testosterone. That's the testosterone, again, that's bioavailable. My analogy here is your total testosterone is your army and the free testosterone are the soldiers who actually have guns, okay? Nice. So free testosterone is what's much more important than total, and that's the number that we look at. That's the number that we want in the optimal range. Again, not, quote, normal, not in the reference range, but in the optimal range. So let's talk a little bit about some of the factors that influence, for example, sex hormone binding globulin, because I know it's not just, and to your point, you had said earlier, it's not just testosterone, like guys that are 300 pounds wanting the Viagra, wanting the libido restored. There are things that influence SHBG, like insulin, right? There's, there's going to be things that are going to influence whether the testosterone is free or bound. So can you speak to some of the other hormonal influences and not necessarily directly on testosterone, but as a conglomerate, what are some of the other hormones you're looking at for, uh, for men in general? So we've talked about yeah. testosterone. I cool. would, I would say, you know, 800 to 1200 nanograms per deciliter is kind of in the, like the optimal range of T that I would like to see. I don't know if you yeah. agree with that or not. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on there. I, I would just emphasize that we care much more about the free, um, because I have right. seen guys with a total testosterone of 1500 Sounds great, right? Then you mm -hmm. look at the free and it's super low. Right. And so why is that, you know, high SHBG, you know, estrogen is a big cause of it. If you have high estrogen levels, that can definitely uh, increase your SHBG level. Um, you know, thyroid can affect SHBG as well. Um, low growth hormone can be a big factor as well. So I, I like to call it a symphony where you need to look at all the hormones together. And is a beautiful combination when everything's working properly, where you have optimal thyroid and testosterone cortisol, insulin, growth hormone, melatonin, vitamin D, estrogen, progesterone, you know, it goes on and on. Uh, we have, you know, probably 10 hormones that are vitally important. And so it, it's key to understand that you can't look at just testosterone and that these other hormones do come into play and they do affect SHBG, as you mentioned, uh, which ultimately affects the bioavailable testosterone function. Yeah. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. 
Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Let's talk a little bit about DHEA. This comes up a lot. Um, And from what, you know, what we know about DHEA, obviously it has an inverse relationship to cortisol. So the more stressed you are, the lower you're going to see, you're lower you're going to see this, um, this level. What are, what's the role of DHEA and how can this lead into, you know, faulty testosterone levels? How can, how, what are some of the influencing factors on DHEA? Yeah, Yeah, great point. And and I'll just point out that I love that you, how you brought cortisol into play here because what happens with cortisol and this is a super common problem with guys that come in with the, one of the most common things i see is poor sleep okay poor sleep which is a whole other topic we can jump on um what's the big result of that is high cortisol now what happens with high cortisol well it crushes dhea as you mentioned it also crushes testosterone it causes insulin resistance and what that does is it, get, it creates a cascade of events to where now you're having trouble with energy, you're having trouble burning fat, you're having trouble building muscle and you have low energy and it creates this vicious, ugly cycle. And a lot of it can be traced back to elevated cortisol. And so we can talk about stress resilience. We can talk about ways of, of managing and controlling cortisol because that's really the culprit for a lot of guys uh, when they have issues that they think are just testosterone alone. Let's talk about that. I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. sure. So, um, and I don't want to lose sight of your DHEA question. I'll definitely answer that yeah, for sure. Yeah, I got it. I, um, I'll pin it back. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, so, so, you know, I have in my male 2.0 um, book, I have my male framework. M-A-L-E is my, the framework that I've created for, for men's health. And, and, and this gap in codes of men's health incorporates the male framework. M is mindset because it all starts with mindset. And a big part of that is stress resilience. And the reason for that is, People think that, yeah, you know, guys are like, yeah, I can handle stress. I'm great under pressure. Well, I'll call BS on you because what you don't realize is the cortisol is having the physiologic effects that I mentioned earlier. And so I'm really focused when I work with men on uh, mindset and, and ways that we can address that. Number one, you know, meditation, um, mindfulness practices. What do you do to, um, to calm yourself and to get in a state of relaxation? And um, I love to use data. So all, all the guys I work with have wearable tech and we use that to track them. So I can track their stress levels with HRV or heart rate variability, which is an objective measure with, you know, I'm wearing my Garmin watch here. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an affiliate for Garmin or anything, but um, use wearable tech to be able to track your stress levels and see how heart rate variability is a surrogate for stress responds to things like meditation or to, uh, you know, what, what leisure activities do you enjoy? I have guys who uh, love to go paddle boarding or they love to go uh, fishing or whatever it may be that gets them into their Zen and space of relaxation. Guys don't schedule that in their lives anymore. Guys don't schedule time for simple relaxation. And so I'm a big proponent of meditating at least two, if not three times a day. What I do is I actually carve time out where I 
in, even in my car, I'll park in a parking lot and turn on, you know, if I need guided meditation, I don't use it as much anymore, but I used to use like headspace. It's a great way for beginners who've never meditated before to just hit play and sit in your car quietly. Um, focusing on good quality sleep, you know, guys will tend to stay up late working, wake up early, um, very little attention to the incredible benefits of sleep. And so good sleep hygiene, making sure you go to bed at the exact same time every single night of the week, even on the weekends is critically important. Even on the weekends. Even on the that's weekend. A big, that's a big one. Yeah. That's right. You cannot catch up. You know, the social jet lag is nonsense uh, where guys will stay up late um, during the week and then they'll try to catch up on the weekends and, and, and um, uh, sleep late that messes up melatonin production. It messes up your circadian rhythm. Your genes know this. You, you have clock genes that are related to your body's uh, uh, regulating your circadian rhythm and, and, and they don't respond well to that kind of uh, abrupt change. So every night, one of the most important things for good quality sleep is to go to bed the exact same time every night and try to wake up at the exact same time every morning. Um, you know, one of the biggest culprits uh, related to poor sleep is what you're doing at night. So a lot of guys are using their phones, using computers, laptops, you know, blue light. What blue light does is it affects your stress levels, your cortisol levels. It affects growth hormone secretion late at night and it affects cortisol. It affects melatonin. All these hormones, again, are coming into play as a symphony. And so it's understanding how lifestyle factors can have such a profound effect on your entire physiology. Again, we're not even talking testosterone here. We're talking all these other things that all yeah. come into play. And, and this is MEL 2.0. It's a systems-based approach to health. So we can look at not only what you're doing at night, we can look at what you're eating. So this comes into the genetics. When I work with men, one of the big data points is genetics. And for a lot of men, they have a variant in what's called the GAD1 gene, G-A-D-1 gene. This gene relates to how your body processes glutamate which is found in soy and MSG and grains, or if you eat a lot of protein, even like I mean, it's an amino acid. Well, glutamate is a very excitatory neurotransmitter. It turns on your brain. If you eat foods high in glutamate late at night and you have a variant of this gene I mentioned, your body can't metabolize it. It can't process it to turn it off. Most people that glutamate turns into GABA, which we know is very soothing and calming and relaxing and it, it's great for sleep. But for some people who have a gene variant, glutamate can be very harmful for you. And so wouldn't you want to know what your genetics show about your GAD1 gene and whether these foods could potentially be affecting the quality of your sleep? Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's understanding how all these pieces fit together, understanding how stress resilience is related to not just your body's ability that you think to handle stress, but what are you actually actively doing to control or manage your body's resilience to stress? Everyone's going to deal with stress in their life is how do you deal with it? How do you train your mind? Um, and that comes through relaxation techniques, meditation, yoga is fantastic. Exercise is great for it as well. Uh, good quality sleep habits is critically important as well. I think it's also important to call a spade a spade because I used to also subscribe to this idea that stress was my competitive advantage. And when you understand what activating this hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the sympathetic nervous system all the time, stress makes you stupid. 
Like, let's just call it what it is. Like when you have prolonged exposure in the brain to cortisol, you are not able to, you know, just from a neurological perspective, retrieve information from your hippocampus, the learning and memory center. So short-term memory, intermediate and long-term. So usually the way the cortisol is supposed to work is there's like some emotionally salient event, right? Like you, uh, you know, the, t- the proverbial tiger in, you know, kind of nomadic times, or you, you know, you have to slam on your brakes because someone cut you off in traffic. And normally cortisol is going to go, it's going to be a short lived little ditty, right? It's going to activate all this, the sympathetic cascade, and you're going to encode that memory because it was very emotionally salient for you. That's the, so this is the brilliant design of our stress, of our stress system. But when, as you're saying, when you are you know, have poor sleep hygiene, you have a lot of dirty, like the EMFs and the blue light, and you're eating in a way that's not coherent with your genetic blueprint. And you are, and you are now activating this stress response all the time. And particularly when you're supposed to get to sleep, which is one of the best anti-inflammatory weight loss, testosterone boosting things you could do, right? You are good. You, it makes you dumb. Like it makes you stupid. And I, I really love, I would really love to, you know, with the work you're doing to kind of get over this idea that being stressed is like this badge of honor or like, I only need to sleep for five hours. Like there's been presidents that, you know, like I only need five hours of sleep. It's like, you're not at your peak. (laughs) Like we know, you know, so I'm so happy that you, I'm so happy that you said that because I think that sleeping well is one of the, like, you can't outrun that. You're not going to out exercise bad sleep. You're not going to out nutrition. Like you have to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of very strong science showing that chronic sleep deprivation is strongly associated with increased risk of early Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease and cancer as well. The big ones. Those are the things that all, you know, they get, those are the, the big three of four, right? The other yeah. ones like cerebrovascular, yeah. right? So right. it really comes down to, you know, when we, when you get down to it, part of the end of my, my male framework is living with intention. And it comes down to really designing your life the way it's supposed to be. And living with intention means that everything you do has a purpose, has a, has, has a function and you're being intentional about it. And that means setting a time. For me, 1030 is my time. That's it. Like everything's like done. Like there's nothing else but sleep because that's my priority. That's my intention at this point. And it's having that focus on priorities that is really critical that I think a lot of people are lacking. I love that. You mentioned GAD1. What are some other, let's move into genetics a little bit. What are some of the, we've had geneticists on the pod before and they've highlighted, you know, certain, you know, in terms of the hormonal cascade, like CYP1A1 and 1B1 and all those. But what are, what are some of the uh, genes that you like to look at when we're thinking about, uh, you know, cardiovascular health, when we're thinking about metabolism and body composition, we're thinking about testosterone, mood and behavior, methylation, all the things. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, I, I generally look at six broad categories of, of genetics when I work with men: uh, nutrition, uh, micronutrient supplementation, sleep, detox, fitness, and hormones. Uh, when we're looking at nutrition, a couple of the big ones that I'm sure your listeners have probably heard before. You know, APOE is the gene related to our body's ability to process, uh, uh, process saturated fat. Uh, I can't tell you how many men will come see me and they're doing uh, either the carnivore diet or, the, or the, they're the keto diet because they were told that's what that's what works, that's what they're supposed to be doing. And the APOE gene is 
uh, is what regulates your body's ability to process saturated fat. So what is saturated fat? Well, saturated fat is found in red meat. It's found in dairy and cheese and eggs, milk, pork, bacon, all those foods, you know, those meat lover foods, uh, the dairy foods that for some people, you know, small doses are okay. For other people who have variants of this APOE gene, um, increased saturated fat intake can promote cardio, early cardiovascular disease and mortality and early progression of Alzheimer's disease. And so it's critically important to know your APOE status when you're deciding what you should eat on a daily basis. Um, we could look at genes related to macronutrient ratios. So for example, the PLIN1 gene is a great gene uh, that uh, helps us understand how your body processes carbohydrates. So a lot of people will actually lose weight. This is counterintuitive. This is against common thought. We'll actually lose weight with higher complex carbs. That goes against what we are taught to believe. We, we, we think low carb is the only way to go to lose weight. Well, for some people, again, variants show otherwise. The same thing with proteins. You know, Some genes will show that we will do better with either a higher or lower ratio of protein intake when it comes to losing weight and building muscle. Uh, some genes show whether we uh, do well or not, the APOA gene related to nuts and whether nuts are good for you or not. You know, there's a, there's a common debate of whether I should, what should I be eating nuts and some nuts are, are generally healthy for you, others are not. And, and there's certain genes that tell us whether we respond well to those or not. Um, looking at micronutrients, there are a lot of genetics related to um, how our bodies uh, absorb micronutrients. Um, B12, you know, there's a lot of issues with um, our gut and how we absorb B12 and, and whether we need B12 additional supplementation or not. Vitamin A, you know, most of the foods we eat have beta carotene as the source of vitamin A. Well, there are genetics related to how our bodies process um, beta carotene into retinoic acid, which is the actually bioavailable active form of vitamin A. Well, if you're missing that key gene, or if you have a variant of this gene, then you need to be supplementing not with beta carotene, but with retinoic acid form of vitamin A. And again, without having genetics, you're just guessing. We can look at detox. There are genetics related to glutathione and catalase and thyroidoxin, which are three of the main enzymes when it comes to, to our body's ability to detoxify and, and you know, handle the, the toxins I mentioned earlier in, in, in our talk. Um, there are uh, genetics related to inflammatory markers like IL-6, which are genes that regulate how our body handles those environmental toxins and, and can regulate them. Uh, we can look at fitness. There are genetics that are really fascinating um, how well our, our bodies respond to um, athletic activities related to endurance versus strength. And our genetics can help us understand whether we might do better or re respond more favorably to strength training versus endurance training. And so a lot of guys I find are running on a treadmill all day when they might be much better off strength training 90% of their time as opposed to all the endurance they're doing. And, and so that's a, that's a woman thing too. So many women do too much cardio. I just like men and like yeah. get off the cardio machines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. A lot of guys will run 10 miles a day because they think that's the right thing to do. And, right. and, and it's not necessarily, yes, yeah, strength, strength training is really critical. Interval training is critical, but the genetics in all these areas of our health can help us really know rather than guess. Mm -hmm. Help us understand our bodies, you know, recognizing that we're all unique, understanding that our genetics uh, uh, and epigenetics, which is how our lifestyle interacts and um, 
um, affects genetic expression, um, how we can, um, you know, best optimize our health. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about exercise. You mentioned, you know, cardio versus training versus high intensity. Um, are there, um, and I, I tend to, I tend to agree with the statement that you just made. I feel like women do way too much cardio. They're like, I need to lose weight, you know, whatever that means. That's, you know, also just an umbrella term, it's mm-hmm. kind of general and vague, but you know, so they'll do lots and lots of cardio and they'll be scared of the weights because scared mm-hmm. of getting bulky. And this is yeah. like more of a female myth, but what are some, what are some examples of, or what are some of the ways that we can manipulate exercise variables to, for example, um, you know, kind of back to the DHEA and the testosterone, how can we boost up our testosterone through strength training, for example, or, um, you know, I, I, you know, when cortisol is really high, you know, when we look at sort of the diurnal pattern of cortisol, where it should be highest in the morning, is that a really great time to train for men? Like what are some of the, how, what are some of the variables we can use exercise for yeah. to help with our help our men sure. the, the timing question I'll tell you is actually personalized uh so uh, it studies are, are across the map when you look at you know what time of day should you exercise and, and and there's really no general consensus on that everyone's very uniquely different and a lot of that comes into lifestyle and and um i, I wouldn't i wouldn't push men to that they have to exercise at one specific time yeah, it's more important um, to get it in like it's more important to exercise than to not yeah, right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's right um, but when it comes to strength training, you know, strength training is and interval training are, are key ways that that uh, we can modulate testosterone levels. Um, one of the important things that I like to focus on with men is what's called carb cycling, and so this is where we uh, we combine our nutritional approach with our fitness approach. And what I mean by this is when we you know we need carbs stores glycogen for building muscle. But obviously, we want to make sure that we're having eating a proper macronutrient balance between carbs, fats, and proteins. And so, what I generally recommend is that guys tend to eat on the lower end of the spectrum related to carbs on days that they are not strength training. And on the days that they do strength train, I want them to be eating maybe 20% more carbs. And so, by, ver- by cycling how much carbs they're eating, by varying their intake with their exercise, they get a much better outcome with that. I do want to emphasize that it's super important that guys are incorporating all aspects of fitness. You know, in general, guys don't tend to move enough. You know, they'll exercise one or two days a week. And I really emphasize you got to be moving at least six days a week and you got to be incorporating strength training, interval training, and some, some, you know, endurance aerobic training, not, not necessarily uh, as much as, as the other two. Um, but then the, the last one is the low intensity stuff. And I think guys don't pay attention to this enough as well, where, you know, stretching and low intensity exercise is so critical. I see guys where they'll, they'll get all excited. I'm going to go train now and I'm going to go lose, lose 30 pounds. And then the first week they, they pull a hamstring and then they're out, they're out for three months. And so conditioning and stretching and even just low intensity stuff, you know, even on a couple of days a week, even just going for a 30 minute walk is better than doing nothing at all. 
I love that. Yeah. You and I are very similar in that. So I actually wrote a book on uh, keto and protein and carb cycling, but for mm-hmm. women, because we go through, you know, men tend to go through this 24 hour cycle with your hormones. Women do it over the course of a month. So we talk about it in terms of weeks. So that's very, it's very interesting. I didn't know that before you just said that. I was like, oh, that's really interesting that you said that. I love that. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about supplementation um, as well. So I, and, and also with the nutrition conversation, I think there's there's something to be said around fasting or if there is any, any protocols that you like with fasting, but before we get there, um, are there any base foundational supplements that you think everyone should be taking? And then uh, obviously there's, there's customization in terms of, you know, what they need more of, then we tailor it, we take it down, we add in the other thing. What are some of your sort of foundational basics, if you have any around supplementation? Yeah. I mean, I mean, everyone needs a good multi, first of all, I, I know, you know, studies may show this or that you need the foundational micronutrients. So everyone I need, I think needs a good quality multi. Um, I, um, I, I find that almost every man I work with needs vitamin D uh, vitamin D deficiency is so incredibly common. Um, you know, the, here we go back to this reference range nonsense again and what's quote normal right you really want your vitamin d levels around 60 to 80 range or so um and so most guys i see they're like 25 30 40 and so uh, vitamin d is is almost um uh, ubiquitously needed (laughs) on our planet or at least our country here um dhea fish oil for for me i think is really a must-have as well you know we can look at the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 you know they call the omega check um, uh, ratio, which I think is critically important. You know, um, when we look at, at what are the evils in our society that are causing obesity and inflammation and insulin resistance and mortality, I believe there are two big evils on this planet. And one is omega-6 fatty acids and the other is sugar. Mm. And so, um, omega-3 fish oils are a way to at least try to help improve that balance between the omega-3 and omega-6 there. Um, you know, obviously you want a ratio as low, you know, around four. So if you can, most guys tend to be 10 to 20, which is not optimal. Um, and so a DHA fish oil, I think is really important. Um, most guys need DHEA. This gets us back to the question earlier, you know, DHEA is really important for mood. It's important for energy. It's important for vitality, for muscle uh, development. Um, you know, it's a precursor to testosterone. Um, I, I will qualify that giving DHEA does not increase testosterone levels. So I don't want to suggest that, but DHEA is vitally important in and of itself. And so I do think it's important. Um, you know, DHEA sulfate is the lab uh, that we check for this. I want to just emphasize also that giving DHEA will not necessarily increase your DHEA sulfate levels because yes. that can be affected by you know, inflammation, gallbladder function, other kind of stuff like that as well. So, um, but DHEA is super uh, vital. Um, one that um, most people probably have not heard of that I actually personally love, and I think most I take and most people should, is holy basil. Holy basil is a zinger for you that you probably weren't expecting to come out of my mouth. No, I wasn't. Yes, let's go it, there. It's, it's yeah. like exercise in a bottle because it will raise your BDNF levels. And so I do love holy basil. What are your thoughts on, I've heard you speak before about NAD precursors, NMN, mm-hmm. nicotinamide, riboside. Yeah. Do you, yeah. how, what is your view on them? Has it changed? Yeah, great time? question. There's, you know, it's continually evolving. Um, I personally take uh, NAD boosters. Um, I think that there is value there. Um, the, the, the issue is that the studies and, you know, Davis and Clara's book right behind me here, Lifespan, 
um, talks about this, uh, about, you know, the studies that have shown that boosting NAD levels uh, extend longevity in animal studies are pretty fascinating. But to do that, it requires a very large dose of NMN to get those NAD levels to where you want it. And most of the uh, NAD boosters out there are not nearly, you know, you probably need about a gram, two grams a day of NMN uh, to get the boost that you need. And Which is the, expensive AF. Expensive, that's right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Most of them have like 250, 500 maybe. And, yeah. and so, uh, you know, it, it. there's an asterisk next to it that, yes, I do like it. I take it myself. Do I think it's a staple that every man needs to take? I, I think that's, that's a, an individualized, conversation to be had. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. I find it interesting as well because we know that NAD declines as we age, you mm-hmm. know, we can't just eat more NAD, <laughs> right. right? You That's can just right. like, you know, you need yeah. to be able to get it in that precursor. And then there's, mm-hmm. you know, then you have these companies like the true Nigens and the Elysiums that just seem like mm-hmm. they want to kill each other. And it's like, which one's better, right? Is it the nicotinamide yeah. riboside or is it like Dr. Mm-hmm. Sinclair talks about the NMN and it's like, yeah. I don't know. We don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I personally, if you're going to take an NAD booster, and again, that's a conversation to be had, I prefer NMN. Yeah. Um, which is the next it. step, right? So yeah. it's like yeah. NR goes to NMN, which goes that's to right. NAD. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay. Very good. All right. Let's talk about fasting for men because I yes. talk a lot about how fasting for women is very different uh, than fasting for men. What is your What are your thoughts on fasting for men? How can it improve, you know, fertility, you know, body composition, yeah. any of those things? Yeah, I, I love I, I love fasting. I, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, uh, time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting um, has a ton of benefits when it comes to. Um, metabolism, when it comes to burning fat, when it comes to energy, cognitive focus, um, it has been shown to improve testosterone levels in a few studies as well. Um, and I think that it, it's really the the foundation when we when I create a, a nutrition plan for guys, that's one of the, the key pieces of it. So when we look at intermittent fasting, um, it, it typically, I'm sure your audience knows this already, but just for those who maybe have been living under a rock somewhere. I don't know. Um, intermittent fasting means that you will eat for a very specific window in the day. So you'll fast for maybe 16 to 18 hours of the day and you'll eat for maybe six to eight hours of the day. And so, um, one way you can do that would be to be, you know, quote, skipping breakfast where you would, uh, quit eating at 6 PM at night. And then if you go 16 hours, it gets you to 10 a.m. And that would be a 16 hour fast. And you'd eat in those eight hours thereafter. So one easy button way to do intermittent fasting is to simply skip breakfast and um, you get to 16 hours uh, much easier that way. Um, I personally recommend a couple nuances there. Number one, I think 18 hours really should be a minimum for that. I think intermittent fasting for you to get the true benefit um, I think 18 hours in my mind should be a target for you. And so, um, for me, it's, you know, 6 PM until 6 PM at night, I'll, I'll finish dinner with my family. And then noon the next day is when I'll start eating. Um, I recommend for guys who are just starting out, it, it's intimidating. It's overwhelming. Guys are just thinking about food because they know they can't have, you know, it's like, if you can't have something, you want it. It's kind of like that, that woman you can't have kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and so, um, I do recommend doing it just one day a week to start, you know, and then gradually go up to two days. And then in the end, I really recommend trying to get up to like four to five days a week if you can. 
Um, I personally uh, love breakfast. And so on the weekends, I will not fast just so I can actually enjoy that with my family. And, uh, you know, socially it can be, it can affect your lifestyle. Um, another way to, to, to put a, a slight twist on intermittent fasting is the fact that your body does better sleeping if you have an empty stomach. So the longer you go between your last meal and bedtime, the better. And so one way to accomplish that would be to actually start those 18 hours well before bedtime. So for example, and this is socially awkward, bear with me here, but if you stop eating at 3 p.m., then you can start eating at 9 a.m. So now you're not skipping breakfast, you're skipping dinner. Mm-hmm. And physiologically, there are benefits to that, again, by going to sleep on a, on a, on a depleted, empty stomach. Um, the downside to that is now you're losing dinner, you know, you're losing the social aspect of, of a meal with people. And so, so not eating at dinner time is tough for most people to, to be able to handle. Um, and so that's why for most guys starting out, skipping breakfast is a lot easier than quote skipping dinner. Um, I also recommend a, at least a 24 hour fast, at least once every other week as well. So for me, every other Monday, I'll go from 6 PM to 6 PM where I'll do just a water fast, uh, or black coffee, perhaps. Um, in small doses. Um, I, I think that that's something that is critically important as well. The tons of benefits for, for fasting. Um, I mean, going back, you know, thousands of years, you know, people have fasted. And I, I think that um, it is something that is difficult at first, but once you get going with it, it becomes commonplace. And for me now, it's like, it, it's, I almost forget to eat now. Right. So for men, like an 18.6 is really the ideal, yeah. you know, to yeah. build up their fasting tolerance to get to 18.6. And right. you're still, you know, with an, you know, for men, you're still eating in that six hour period. So you can still have one, two large meals mm-hmm. uh, in that time. So you're getting in your caloric, you know, needs for that, yeah. for that as well. That's right. Um, all right. So let's, let's, you know, kind of put this all together. Cause we've talked about a lot of different facets for male health. We've talked about hormones. We've talked about sleep. We've talked about exercise and nutrition and genetics, you know, in an ideal world, how would you, you know, if you had all the male 2.0s, they're all running around, what would be the metrics that they would know? And how would they, how would you want them to interact with their physician? What would be the things that you would want them to be asking for or advocating for? Yeah, good question. You know, when I look at, you know, I've, I've, I've created what I call the gap in code to men's health. And, and what it really incorporates is number one, using data. So I would ask, you know, what data are you using to actually track results? You know, you can look at, you know, biomarkers, you know, specific lab values that may be helpful. But, you know, what about wearable tech? Are you using that to track your sleep? It's not just the quantity, but the quality. Are you tracking your stress levels? Are you tracking your, you know, heart rate variability as a surrogate for, for your, your physiology related to stress? Uh, are you tracking what you're eating? Are you tracking your, your macronutrient ratios? Are you tracking how much activity you're doing and if it's enough? Um, are you using your genetics? Are you incorporating your genetics in your strategies? Are you using things like CGM to see how your blood sugar may, may vary during the day, even without eating, even just from stress? And so my, my key point here is data-driven is the future of health. You know, using the, 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 the connection between technology and physiology is where we're going. And so I, I would emphasize for men out there to, to take advantage of the tools that we have to accumulate and acquire data and use it, 
you know, I, I use an app called Heads Up Health, which is a fantastic app that I, I would support. Um, and I, I have all my clients and my coaches who work under me um, using Heads Up Health. Because with that, I can look on my dashboard and I can look at my Garmin data, my Aura data, my Fitbit, my Whoop, my Apple Health. I can look at my CGM, my labs, my chronometer to see my intake, um, my activity, all of it in one spot. And that's data. You know, that's data is how we're able to, to really drive decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I, I would really emphasize, uh, again, a, a, what I like to call a systems-based approach to men's health. And that is the male framework. And understanding that, you know, it may start with testosterone, but it doesn't end there. And that's one piece of the bigger picture. And if that's all you're focused on, you're focusing on, you're missing all the other key components. And so, you know, M is mindset. A is aging, looking at all the other hormones and cellular efficiency and cellular damage. L is lifestyle, looking at your nutrition and your fitness and your sleep. And then E is environment and dealing with your detox function, your gut health and environmental, you know, endocrine disruptors that we talked about. And it's putting all those pieces together that is really, you know, helping us take a data-driven personalized approach. So Mail 2.0, where can people find the book and where can people find you? Thank you. My website's drtracygappin.com. And um, I have an offer for a free copy of my book. If you'll just handle shipping, it is drtracygappin.com forward slash limitless. Wonderful. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Dr. Gavin, it's so lovely to have someone focusing on our beautiful men. You know, we have myself, I like to focus on the ladies and like the perimenopausal, my menopausal ladies, but we also need their counterparts. You know, our men, beautiful, happy, healthy, and feeling good in their skin. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for taking the time today. This was a pleasure. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, Betty Army, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tracy and you have some actionable items now in terms of how we can help our beautiful men protect their testosterone, protect their sperm and protect humanity at large. And maybe that's a bit of a reach, but not so much uh, when you actually get into the data around sperm counts and testosterone counts in our men. And I wanted to end our chat today with a review that came in from the United States. And I love and appreciate every single review, but this review really got to me. Um, She has obviously a big fan of the pod and I just absolutely love everything she says. It's a longer review, but I think it's worth highlighting and, and worth reading and worth honoring because she took the you know an amount the amount of time she took to put all this together and share with me i just so honor and appreciate so this is from saki girl uh from the united states and the name of the review is called life changing podcast I stumbled across Dr. Stephanie while she was being interviewed for a different podcast. I loved her message and that interview. Women matter. Their health, happiness, and pleasure. It all matters. As a woman who just turned 48 and has lived through a childhood of antibiotics for earaches, the introduction of cheese-covered tortilla chips and white fluffy bread, and so many other fake foods of the 70s and 80s, into her childhood daily diet, shaming around her body when becoming overweight from all the junk food, and then when hitting puberty, never had any sex talk or menstruation talk in my childhood home, I have struggled my whole life with dieting, eating disorders, and hating my body. I bought Dr. Stephanie's book and I read it twice. I underlined it and I highlighted it. And then I started on her podcast. 
this podcast is so good. So, so good. The information is broken down so it's easily digested. She takes science topics and explains them so we can all understand whether we have a science degree or not. She interviews people who you never knew you needed in your life. Experts in hormones, women health, women's health, women's sexual health, exercise, skincare, mindset. And then she has a weekly segment called Geeky Magic. And what magic it is. I don't have girls. I was blessed with three boys. Me too, by the way, I got three boys. Uh, but just yesterday sent me, sent this podcast link to my friends who have girls to listen to the four weeks of menstruation in her masterclass where Dr. Stephanie breaks down the monthly cycle week by week. What is happening in the female body, both physically and emotionally. So important for our girls who get so little information in this area, other than it is a curse and is ours to bear. I recently went into my, this is amazing. I recently went into my podcast app and deleted the other podcasts in my library. This is the only one left. Once I make it through all the episodes, I still have a handful of the early ones left. I plan to listen to some of my favorites over again. And on a final note, I don't leave reviews ever. (laughs) I can't remember even one on Amazon, but this podcast needs to reach more and more women. I hope my review helps one or two people find Dr. Stephanie and that it changes their life or lives for the better as it has done for me. Great job, Dr. Stephanie. I'm thankful that you took the leap of faith away from your clinic and into this area to reach even more women. You're doing such important valued work. Thank you. So let me just say, like, I'm crying already. Like, if you can hear it in my voice, like, thank you so much for this review. It is so meaningful to me that first you took the time, but that the impact of my work has impacted you in such a profound way. And really, it's my dream uh, for anybody to be impacted, for everybody, everyone who listens to the podcast to be to be impacted um, in the way that you will. And this fortifies my drive to help reach more women on other platforms as you found me and through my work here and through my work in my membership site, Hello Betty. So thank you, uh, Saki girl. Uh, I'm sending you a big hug. If I ever get to see you in person, I am going to squeeze you so tight. Um, and if you, if you, um, are finding that this podcast deserves a review of this caliber, or even if you're just like, Hey, I really loved the last episode. Good work. I read all of them. Um, and I love to highlight ones like this for you as well. So thank you, uh, so much and we'll see you. We'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 